0: You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. The first Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two. Your sermon text this morning, just two short verses, but they are packed full of insight and beauty for the people of God, and it is the privilege of my life to open God's word before his people. First Peter chapter two, starting in verse four, as you come to him, a living stone, Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, verse 5, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is God's holy word to us this morning. Please be seated. For the last couple of weeks, we have been building on this theme of Christian devotion. What it means to be a Christian devoted both to Christ and to each other. And we started the new year looking back at the purest history of the church in Acts chapter 2 when the church was born and the spirit was poured out like a mighty rushing wind upon that 120 that were gathered in that upper room. And it was a pure and inspiring moment to be a part of the church and God moved in their gathering. And what we discovered is a church devoted born out of the spirit moving among his people was a people devoted both to Christ and to each other. And so we, we saw it now for the last two weeks to take those two main characteristics of the church, a church devoted to Christ and to each other, and have sought to go a little bit deeper into those two characteristics of the church. Last week, we looked first at what the church devoted to Christ looks like, both in our confession about him and in our conduct in the world. What does it look like to be a church devoted to Christ in what we say about Jesus and how we live in the world? In short, we looked at the Christian's devotion to our Lord and Savior. This week, I want us to dig in a little deeper into this call from the Scriptures for Christians, believers, to be devoted to one another. What does it mean and what does it look like to be devoted to one another? Throughout the Scriptures, there is an inseparability between one's devotion to the Lord and one's devotion to the believer, to other followers of Christ. There's an inseparability between these two things. In fact, the apostle John puts it in more blunt terms than I just did. In First John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, listen to the apostle. He says, quote, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. In Jesus' most significant sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount... His sermon begins with a category that is called or often referred to as the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. It's interesting as you read through the Beatitudes, that first part of his most famous sermon, the first half of those Beatitudes is the heart posture of a true believer toward the Lord. Blessed are those, again, who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The first beatitudes is the true believer's heart posture towards the Lord. But the second half of those beatitudes is the true believer's heart posture towards other Christians. Other believers. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Biblically speaking, to love God, but remain indifferent to other brothers and sisters in Christ is a foreign concept in all of the Bible. It's utterly foreign. Instead, the natural effect of our love and devotion to God is a love and devotion to his people. And as a consequence, Jesus himself said that our love and devotion to each other becomes a powerful witness to the gospel in the world. When we are devoted to Christ and devoted to each other, this becomes a remarkable light to a world in darkness. Jesus said this in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus taught his disciples a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, Jesus said, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. What is the key witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ among a watching world? Is it political affiliation? Some say. Is it Moral obedience to the law outside, some say. Christ said it's the love of the church. One for another becomes this beacon of light to a world that is increasingly isolated and increasingly angry. And when a church comes together and we dignify one another in Christ, it becomes a powerful witness to an otherworldly citizenship, a citizenship that is born in heaven. Now, I want to approach this topic of our devotion one to another. I want to approach this topic from an angle that we don't often think about. And it's this idea of the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. That phrase was made popular in the Reformation, the Great Reformation, when Luther and other reformers were seeking to disrupt the abuses of power that had happened in the Roman Catholic Church. The reformers thought that the church had given too much authority to the priests, and certainly too much authority to the Pope. And therefore, they sought to recapture a forgotten teaching in the New Testament, and that is the priesthood of every believer. Luther and the other reformers were in no way trying to do away with the role of the priest or the pastor in the church. But they had seen that the church had grown too dependent upon professional clergy. And they themselves and the Christian had forgotten that they themselves had unique access to God. Through their union with Christ and as a result... The church had forgotten that they were uniquely qualified to minister the gospel and serve one another. And so in the great reformation, the reformers would, were recapturing this idea of the priesthood of every believer. Not just of the men in the cloth and not just in the Roman papacy, but every believer has unique access to God and therefore unique access to each other. An interesting parallel is happening today. The dynamics are different, but an interesting parallel is happening today, 500 years later, after the Reformation. Today, where more and more people, it seems, are okay with being passive observers of their church. Either digitally, watching digitally online, which is a whole nother sermon, passively watching professional clergy put on some sort of a thing or merely attending on a Sunday morning with little engagement beyond that. A similar trend is, is happening where, where Christians are, are becoming passive observers in the church. Well, I can't speak to or speak for the rest of the congregations and churches outside of this body. But my hope this morning is to recapture a biblical vision for the priesthood of every believer here at Roots Community Church in hopes that the Holy Spirit this is a miraculous thing that has to happen. I, I heard a, a quote a few months ago that was a quote to preachers. Somebody said, Preacher, remember on Sunday morning, your preaching is not powerful enough to resurrect a cricket. You you can't you got nothing to even resurrect a cricket. So this is not because of, a, of an impassioned sermon. This would be the result. If this breaks out a priesthood of every believer, we all take a beautiful ownership and stewardship of our care for one another. Another, This would be a move of the Holy spirit. This would be a miraculous thing. And what would it be like to experience that together? But our hope is that the Holy spirit would move in our church in such a way that a healthy devotion to Christ would give way to sincere devotion toward one another. And so to this end, that is an introduction to our sermon. To this end, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, under these couple of verses, under these three headings, if you're a note-taker. First, a new temple. Second, a new priesthood. And third a new kind of sacrifice. So there is a new temple which gives way to a new priesthood, which gives way to a new kind of sacrifice among us. So first, a new temple. Look at the very first part of verse four in 1 Peter chapter two. Peter is writing, the apostle Peter. Peter says, as you come to him. Stop Stop right there. We are going to move faster in this sermon than what it appears. But we have to do a little work. As, it, as you come to him, Peter says. And the question for the reader is, who is him? This is really, really important that you tune in at this point in the sermon. As you, the church, come to Him. Look briefly with me at just the surrounding verses, verse 2 and 3, right above verse 4, to figure out who is him that Peter is talking about. Peter says in verse 2, he says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now look at verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And then he says in verse four, as you come to him. So the Lord of verse three is the hymn of verse two. Why is that important? That's important because verse three is a direct quote from Psalm 34 verse eight. Oh, taste and see that the Lord Yahweh is good. So now here in verse four in our text this morning, Paul, or Peter says, as you come to him, him in verse three is a clear reference to Jesus. That's been the main point of his whole argument for two chapters. The point is, Jesus wants for us to see that there is no qualitative distinction between the Lord of Psalm 34, Yahweh, taste and see that the Lord is good, and Jesus Christ. There's no qualitative difference. If indeed you have tasted that Yahweh is good, and as you come to him, the point is, this is the same God. So why does Peter want us to see that there's no distinction in essence between the God of the old covenant and Jesus Christ? Because listen, Peter is about to say something that would be utterly heretical. It would be heresy if Jesus isn't truly God. Look at what what Peter says in verses 4 and 5 next. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Peter says, you yourselves like living stones, listen, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He says, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood in order to offer sacrifices. Now, what Peter is describing is some place and something whereby these sacrifices were only made throughout redemptive history, throughout the history of redemption. These things, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offering sacrifices, were done only in one place, and that is the holy temple in Israel. And so, Peter is saying that in the New Covenant, there is still a spiritual house. And there is still a priesthood in that house. And there are still sacrifices being made. But it's not happening in the physical temple. Peter is saying that there is now a new meeting place between God and man. And it's not a place, it's a person. And it's utter, utter blasphemy if this person is not God. To say you can meet with God and offer sacrifices unto him. And and Jesus is that place. And if Jesus is not truly divine, then Peter is a heretic. Peter is saying there is a new meeting place, a new mediation. It's not the temple. It's now Jesus. But notice with me what Peter says in verse 5. He says this now to the church. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Peter is saying that not only is Christ our new temple, our new meeting place between God and man, not only is Christ our new temple... But now those who are in Christ, who are united to Christ, have become living stones. The living stones that make up this new house of God. That's why in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle especially will use this language to describe the people that you are a holy temple. Remember Paul, in order to provoke um, obedience with our bodies, he says, don't you know that you're not your own? your bodies were purchased you are your body is the temple of the holy spirit and here peter is pulling on that same theme and he says Christ Jesus is the temple and the church is the living stones that make up this new meeting place between god and man there is a new gathering place for worship and in his spirit indwelt people they are the living stones notice they're living stones I was reading through my notes this morning and it just dawned on me. They're living. <laughs> they're not passive. They're not dead. I, I sold stone for 14 years in the private world. Like they, they can be beautiful. But they don't do anything. You just install them and they're there. They're passive. That is not the picture of the church. We are living stones. We are active in this household, this new temple that God has built in and around his son, Jesus Christ. So that's point one. There is a new temple. Jesus is the new gathering place between God and men. And his people are the living stones that make up the architecture of this beautiful home. So there's a new temple, but there's also now a new priesthood. There's a new priesthood. Look at verse 5 again. Peter says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. For what? To be a holy priesthood. In the same chapter, in chapter 2, if you just jump down to verse 9, we don't have this text on the, on the screen, but if you just look at verse 9 in the same chapter, Peter goes on on this same thing. He's speaking to the church. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Throughout redemptive history the priesthood was assigned. The priesthood was assigned to a very selective group of people who were descendants from a very particular tribe in Israel, who were descendants from Aaron only, the tribe of Levi. If you wanted to be a priest in the temple and offer sacrifice unto God, you needed to be of the tribe of Levi, a descendant of Aaron. So it was a Very selective group of people who were descendants from a very particular tribe in Israel. And the priest's job, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple, the priest's job was to go into the holy place and offer sacrifice on behalf of God's people to God. And then, after God would accept that sacrifice, the priest would turn around and would offer blessing to the people of God on behalf of God. So the priest was a mediator. They would go into the presence of God. In fact, the high priest would wear an ephod. And it had those 12 jewels. You guys might be in it in your Bible reading. If you're doing the chronological thing. They would wear the ephod that had the 12 jewels. And the 12 jewels would represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And the, holy, the, the high priest would put on the ephod representing the people. The 12 tribes of Israel. And, they'd go, and he would go into the presence of God and offer sacrifice unto God. And God would atone for the sins of his people. And then the priest with joy would turn around and would go to the people and pronounce blessing. Atonement. God has shown mercy to us again. So the priests, the, the priests were mediators between God and man. The main offering was a burnt offering. It was one of four offerings. If you read all the different offerings, the wave offering and so forth, the burnt offering was the main offering. And it was offered to God every morning and every evening. And think about this, not just for a few months or a few years, this would go on For decade after decade after decade throughout redemptive history, every morning and every evening, a burnt offering unto the Lord was made. And this is how it went down. This is first, or rather Leviticus chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He, that is the priest, shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, usually by slitting the throat. And Aaron's, and, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Every day, every morning, and all throughout the day, and every evening, sacrifices unto God on behalf of God's people were being made in the temple every single day until until there was no more need for a sacrifice decade after decade after decade of offering Hebrews chapter 9 In the New Testament, the author of Hebrews records this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Beloved, the advent of Christ is so unbelievably disruptive when Christ came and offers himself as a blood sacrifice to God, the sacrificial system ceased at that moment. This means that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, the author of Hebrews says an eternal redemption is offered to the people of God. The reason sacrifices were done morning and evening and during the day is because everybody knew, and certainly God knew, that the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do away with the sin of humanity, but would cover it temporarily. And so constant sacrifice was made. Blood was pouring out of the tabernacle and out of the temple until a unique blood, another kind of blood, a heavenly blood would come. And grace upon grace, this high priest would come in, not with an animal, but with himself. The eternal lamb of God. Therefore, the argument from the New Testament is there is therefore no need for an animal sacrifice in the temple. There is no need for human mediation between God and man, for priests to go into the holy place than the holy of holies. Because the great high priest has sacrificed himself. Paul writes to a young pastor named Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. For he says, Paul says, there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. There is one God and there is one mediator. And the God man, Jesus Christ through the sacrifice of himself has bridged the chasm. Therefore, beloved, there is a new temple and a new priesthood. And so another writes this quote, when Christ this is beautiful. When Christ uttered his last breath on the cross, he tore in two the temple veil that shrouded the Holy of Holies. This is an often forgotten detail in the crucifixion. We don't think about this enough. When Jesus breathed breathed his last, an earthquake happens in the world and the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from everything else was rent into from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. What happened? What is God saying in that? There is no separation now between a holy God And his people. Christ's blood. Is the new curtain. And if you come through his blood. You come in. To the very presence. Of God. That's why Peter can call the church. A holy priesthood. Because the church has been granted. Presence into. The presence of. The almighty God. They are holy because they are made clean. That's what holy means, to be made clean and set apart. You're a holy priesthood, cleansed by the blood of the lamb. But then Peter, in in verse 9, says you're a royal priesthood. You're not only holy, but you're royal. What does that mean? That means you've not only been cleansed, but you've been adopted by the king. You're holy and you're royal in Christ. So in Christ, there is a new temple And in Christ, there is a new priest and therefore, there is a new priesthood. Now notice with me, finally, this new priesthood, those now of us cleansed by the blood who have access to God. Notice in verse five again, Peter says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now, what does this new priesthood do? Peter says to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Notice that sacrifices are still being made in the church age. In the new covenant, sacrifices are still being made because Christ was the once and for all sacrifice who atoned for sins. Now our sacrifices are spiritual. We're not sacrificing bulls and goats, but our sacrifices now are spiritual. They are acts of spiritual worship. They are still a pleasing aroma to God. And they are acceptable to God, not on the basis of the quality of our worship. Praise God. Did you notice how or what by what means God accepts our worship? Through Jesus Christ. So we're like little toddlers down here trying to do a sacrifice unto the Lord. So it's not the quality of our worship that makes our sacrifice acceptable. It's our great high priest who mediates our worship and makes it pleasing to God. So my question, I want to end with this and I want to just settle here because we're talking about now the priesthood of every believer. Now in Christ, we're living stones in the temple and we're a priesthood. We have access to God. We can go to the presence of God like the old covenant priests. And we now have access to his people. We go to his people to pronounce blessing. What does it mean and what does it look like? What does it mean and what does it look like? First, as I said, we have now as the priesthood of the saints, unrestrained access to God. Unrestrained. I I said this earlier as you guys were coming in. Satan has two main tools that he loves to use. First, he loves to try to convince you that you are totally independent. That you don't need God for wisdom. You don't need God for power. That you are totally self-sufficient. That is the lie he uses over and over and over and over again. He's got the same card over and over again. You're independent. You're a snowflake. You're beautiful. You can do it all by yourself, all by your bootstraps. You got this. And he plays that card and we believe it. We bite sometimes. But then when we bite, he's got one other card. And that is, you're done. You're so condemned. You think you can go into the holy of holies before God now that you've stained yourself from sin? How dare you? Who do you think you are? He's the accuser of the brethren. He will convince you that you're okay and you don't need God. And then when you blow it, he'll condemn you. But in Christ... Through the eternal lamb of God. We are convinced that we are not independent. That we are a needy people. And when we fail. We don't need to clean ourselves up. We don't need to do ritual. We don't need to light a candle. We don't need to do penance. We have a mediator. We have an intercessor. Who is praying for us constantly. When we're sleeping. He's praying. Why? So that we can have. Unrestrained access to God. As we're stuttering and fumbling all over ourselves, we have unrestrained access to God. The veil has been torn and Christ's blood has covered us. So, to be a New Testament priest means to love God and have access to Him through Christ. But, like we said, To be a New Testament priest also means that you move from the presence of God toward the people of God in order to bless them. Since Abraham, since Adam and Eve, God blesses his people in order that his people will be a blessing. It's never for themselves only. But like the old covenant priests, we go into the presence of God We hear the blessing of God, and then we go to the people of God, and we serve them, and we bless them. Remember, throughout the scriptures, there is an inseparability between one's devotion to the Lord and one's devotion to his people. As another writes, quote, As Christians, we not only exercise the priestly function of entering God's holy presence in cleansed purity because of Christ, but now we are also to hold fast our confession and help one another grow in holiness. What does that look like boots on the ground? Like what does that mean to help one another grow in holiness? This is the priestly function now of the new covenant church. A Christian, a saint is to go into the presence of God unrestrained, and now go toward other Christians and help them in their growth in godliness. What does that look like? I was so undone this week when I turned to Romans chapter 12 to see in Romans chapter 12 a blueprint for priestly service in the church. So turn with me to Romans chapter 12, the first 13 verses, and then we'll close Romans chapter 12. It's a familiar text, but couched in this context, I think it has bright new relevance. Romans 12 verse one, Paul writes and listen to the, listen to the temple imagery. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul's using temple language. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, more temple language, which is your spiritual worship. Same thing Peter said in chapter 2. Then he says, do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, so Paul is saying, this is, this is who you are now. In Christ, he's developed for 11 chapters in Romans, the theology of the cross. He's taken us into the Holy of Holies where we see justification through the Son. And now from chapter 12 on, Paul is saying, now what? What happens now? What does it look like to be a Christian in this new spiritual house whereby Christ is the eternal sacrifice? He says, you're now living sacrifices. You're a priesthood that lives by way of spiritual worship. What does this look like? Keep reading. Look at verse 3. For by the grace given to me, Paul says, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned for or because as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching... The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Then he says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is the only competition in the church that's allowed. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. In Romans 12, verses 1 through 13, Paul is fleshing out what the priesthood of every believer looks like. This is what it looks like in this new temple, in this new household. He says, in Christ, the believer is now to present all of themselves, like the Levitical priesthood, to devote all of themselves to the service of the Lord. All? Yes. Yes. Your bodies are to be living sacrifices. This is way of Paul saying, not not a portion of you, your whole body, your whole soul, your whole mind, it reflects Jesus' command. Love the Lord your God with all your might, with all your soul, with all your strength. They are to present themselves as a living sacrifice. This is why it takes the Holy Spirit because Paul, what Paul is describing here is a radical reorientation of one's entire life. That's the expectation. A radical reorientation of one's entire life. Wow. <laughs> so what does it look like, Paul? What, what, do you, what does that look like in your inspired mind, what does that look like to be a part of this new priesthood? I'm going to just go through these things and then we're going to pray. First, the new priesthood is to be a humble priesthood. Did you notice that? Don't think too highly of yourselves. So I don't know about you, but when I think of priest, I think pretty cool. <laughs> Where's my ephod? Where's my, you know? No. The first, before he moves on to action, it's posture of heart. The New Testament priesthood is to be humble. How do you do that? You think diligently about the needs of other people, diligently. And again, this takes a miracle to happen in our hearts. So we are to be a humble priesthood second the new covenant priest is to recognize that they are not alone but they are part of a body did you notice that what paul said you're one member of many there's no high priest anymore christ is the great high priest but priests now we are are interdependent upon one another we're like a body that functions. And in other context, Paul says that like a body, you can't say an eye, can't say to the hand, I don't, I don't need you. I'm, I'm an eye. I, I don't need a hand. Your body needs a hand and an eye. And so like that, the new covenant priests are interdependent. That means we are needed, as Welch says, and what? Needy. We are needed and we are needy. And I have found in 12 years of pastoring and in my own heart, this ditch on either side. There's two kinds of members. The needed one, I'm needed here. I can see that I'm needed here, right? And then there's the other one that's, I've got nothing nothing to offer. I'm just needy. I only take. I just need to be served. I've got nothing to offer. Both are equally wrong. Both are equally wrong. You are at the same time needed and needy. I understand being in seasons of needing to receive and there are seasons of, of, of service and so forth. But as a priest, nobody's independent. Nobody's independent. And nobody just needs. We are needed and needy. You're a ro- I am not saying you're a royal priesthood or holy priesthood. God says you're a holy priesthood and a royal priesthood. That's his title he's given to all of us. So we're needed. We're interdependent upon one another. The third thing I love that Paul says this. stirs in my heart. He says, the love of the priesthood should be genuine and affectionate. Let love. So when you move from the presence of God, now to the people of God, he says, let your love be genuine. Man, do we need genuine love right now. I mean, somebody that knows you thoroughly and is still willing to walk through life with you. Genuine love and genuine affection. He says, brotherly affection. What that means to me is, first, our love needs to be embodied love. Embodied love. I mean, you could tell me you love me until you're blue in the face, but if you're never around me, I'm not going to believe you. I love you. I text you, I love you. I love you when I'm present with you. I love you when I'm looking at you in your eyes and you're hurting and I'm with you and I'm not going to abandon you because you've got nothing to give me. So love is an embodied love. We are not Gnostics. Gnostics believe that flesh is bad and the spirit is good and therefore we can be a disembodied church. No. No. We're an embodied people. God loves his physical creation and we are showing genuine love when we are present with each other. Therefore, the New Testament priest comes near, physically near to the people of God. Fourth, Paul says that the New Testament priest needs to be patient in tribulation. In local church life, there will be hard times Really hard times. We've been going through that. And so it takes patience in the local church. One, to endure tribulation in hard times. And the way to do that, Paul says, if you notice, is through much prayer. How do you endure tribulation in the church and personally? Prayer. Crying out to God. That's what prayer is. Utter dependence upon God. I've got nothing. I've got no answers. I need you. So a New Testament priest needs to be patient in tribulation. Finally, in verse 13 of our text, Paul says that the priest contributes to the needs of the saints and seeks to show hospitality. Now he'll go on and talk about other things that the New Testament priest is to do, but I'm going to end on this idea of hospitality because it's such a broad term and it, Can take so many different shapes. I had thought that at the end of this service, because here's what would be wise for me to do right now is to share with you all of the practical needs in our church. (laughs) Right? I hope we're a little bit more convinced of our priesthood, of our privilege to move toward each other in love and to be the body of Christ together. I hope we're more convinced of that. It would probably be wise for me to say, these are the needs of the church and just open the bulletin one more time for you to read through them. But I'm not going to do that. Instead, what I would like for us to do is pray. To ask God, as you understand this new temple, new priesthood, new sacrifice paradigm, and you read later through the bulletin or you go through Realm, and you hear some of the needs of the church, would you ask the Lord to provoke your heart to meet the needs of the church in love? And, and let's just see if the Lord would just break out among us a Holy Spirit wrought devotion to one another. And here's the deal. I, I, don't, I, I recognize most of you. Some of you I don't recognize. If that's not this church, make it a different church. But find a local church, yoke yourself to that local church and ask our great high priest, how might I be a blessing here? How might I leave the presence of God and now to the people of God and be hospitable, to be generous, to serve? Does it look like serving on Sunday? Does it look like praying through the church directory? Does it look like preparing a warm meal for somebody? What is it? And I am confident that the head of this church, Jesus, through the Spirit of God, will direct our hearts and will build his church so that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? So, by his grace, may we be a priesthood together. Let's pray.